Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? It's great. It's a little bit rainy here today, but we're all inside anyway, so... So, dude, check this out. Um, it's like 50 degrees outside right now, and, you know, I don't got no heat on in my room or anything, but my feet are freezing, and I don't know what my problem is. Like, my feet are just always cold. I even got a pair of winter socks on. My feet are still cold. Oh, and the church came out with a statement, finally, condemning those events at the Capitol last week. As of this recording, it's been, what, one day, two days? Right. It came out yesterday. Church finally did it. I just have one thing to say. Of course you do. Let it be known as well that Derek has once again shown up to this podcast episode saying that I don't know what I'm going to say today or I don't have that much to say. So let it be known that if this episode ends up being over 45 minutes, that means that Tamara had to cut at least 10 to 15 off, which means this episode was still an hour anyway, despite the fact that apparently Derek was not prepared to talk about the Doctrine and Covenants today. Go ahead, Derek. Didn't mean to interrupt Well, you. I wasn't planning to say anything about this statement, but now I am. <laughs> the one thing I was going <laughs> to... The one thing I want to say, and I'm limiting it to one thing, is Ooh. people wonder, well, why don't they make a bolder statement? Or why don't they make a statement faster? And I think I know the reason. It's because their handlers won't let them. They probably have bureaucrats and lawyers all up in their business and not letting them be bold and brave and be an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel. And that's, that's my theory, is their handlers won't let them. Their handlers critique every word of the bland statement that gets out, and that's what we get. So maybe we shouldn't have higher expectations. Let us go ahead and uh, move on to discussing the Come Follow Me. But before we do that... Just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion Thanks. of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So today we are in Doctrine and Covenants, section three through five. Derek, you want uh, you want to bless us with some context for these verses we're about to dive into today? Sure, yes. So in section three, we've got one of the most difficult times at the beginning of Joseph Smith's career. So Martin Harris and his wife Lucy were considering financially backing the publication of the Book of Mormon. And they wanted a witness, as both of them wanted a witness of the truth of the Book of Mormon. And so Martin wanted to borrow the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon manuscript to bring home and show a number of people, including his wife. And while he did that, the pages went missing. And in response to that tragedy, we get the Lord's words in section 3. And one thing that I find really profound about this is that this section, section three, is literally the first written recorded scripture of this dispensation. It was written down before what we have of the Book of Mormon. It was written down before any other revelation. It was written down before Joseph's history. This is the first words of scripture we have in our canon in this dispensation. 
Should we talk about? Let's wait and talk about the background of four and five. Oh well, I guess five. Let's cover section five because that continues Martin Harris's story. So after this whole thing, they resume the translation of the uh, Book of Mormon, and that section basically says, yes, you can get started, and here's what it is, and here's what I'm going to do is give you, Martin Harris, a witness of the Book of Mormon. And then Martin was one of the three witnesses. So that's the purpose of section five. And maybe I'll just say a little bit about section four right now, too. Section four <laughs> happened when Joseph Smith Sr. went all the way to Harmony. So Joseph and Emma were living in Harmony, Pennsylvania at this time. And that explains why Joseph wasn't around when Martin was losing the 116 pages. And so Joseph Smith Sr. came all the way to Harmony from New York to say, hey, where am I in this? Where do I fit in this new thing? And that's where we get section four. Mm -hmm. So with section three, there is uh, one prominent idea that I really wanted to focus on because it really resonates with a theme that we, or I, I suppose it might even run counter to a theme that we have discussed on the show many times, which is something that I wanted to bring out for discussion. Now, we've talked about many times on the show, wearying the Lord with our prayers, referencing the words of prophets, referencing the stories of Jacob, re referencing a parable, uh, referencing other stories in the Book of Mormon. We've talked about uh, bringing our concerns to the brethren in this day and age that they might inquire of God on our behalf, uh, especially for issues surrounding LGBTQ folks and uh, the place of other people in the plan of salvation. Uh, we've, you know, we've discussed that on the show many times. Most recently, we've been talking about how we can be like Joseph Smith in asking God for ourselves what His will is for us, going and you know, often going against you know, traditional going against conventions and conventions and doing so like uh, Joseph Smith's the beginning of his ministry and a lot of his ministry is marked by going against conventional wisdom or any other kind of uh, religious convention. That is basically what our church is founded on is going against religious convention. So we have a very interesting thing in these chapter in these sections because we often use sections uh, three and five to suppress this kind of dialogue and inquiry, sometimes even taking pride in what I can only describe as our dogmatism when we read the words, you should not have feared man more than God, or when we read that Joseph's sin was yielding to the persuasions of men. We, we use these passages and this story oftentimes to discourage people from pressing the brethren for answers and seeking revelation on the relevance of current policies and practices. And we write off such inquiries from dissenting voices as, quote, the persuasions of men. So I just wanted to put up the question first off to you, Derek, and, you know, just for us to, gen to generally discuss what might be getting lost in translation here? Like, why would we perhaps discourage what Joseph Smith and Martin Harris did here, but we encourage the inquiries and the wearyings of uh, other people in other contexts? Well, the first thing I want to say is, at least from my perspective, I don't know if we're going to disagree about this, but I don't think it was wrong for Harris to ask Martin to show people the pages, and I don't think it was wrong for the prophet 
to ask the Lord if it's okay to show the pages. I just don't think it's wrong to ask. Like, and I don't think it's wrong to repeatedly ask. And so here's how I would frame it. You know how in many times throughout the Lord's dealings with the Lord's people, we've got sort of a training wheels type law, and then we've got a higher law, which has more risks, but more benefits to it. And I think here's what, what was happening. At first, the Lord was like, look, it's just going to be simpler. If you don't show the pages to anyone, then there's no possibility of messing this up. And then Joseph and Martin took it to the Lord and asked for a higher law. That is, to take off the training wheels and to say, hey, look, if we do this right, it won't get messed up. The problem is they didn't do it right. It's not that they asked for a higher law. It's not that they asked for a more difficult uh, and more risky endeavor. I think that's really what we end up doing as members of the church. We grow into, line upon line, harder commandments, ones that have more benefit and more risk. I guess I'm still kind of on the fence because, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of problem with asking, but also there's another part of me that's just like, you know, if the Lord says no, the answer is no, because clearly, as you've already pointed out, Derek, they weren't ready to receive the yes answer, you know, and I feel like this is where we put ourselves under the greater condemnation. And that's a that's another a lesson from this story. He asked for something that the Lord was reluctant to give him, something that he said no. And then when he actually got it, he didn't honor the gift which is something I am scared of all the time is I feel like I'd be asking the Lord for stuff. And then when I finally get what I've been asking for or something that the Lord has been reluctant to give me, and then I don't honor that gift that I'm under a greater condemnation. Like this isn't the first time something like this has happened, you know, in the story of the uh, children of Israel, when the Lord tried to give them more, when he tried to do something for them or uh, give them more than what they were giving, the children of Israel were like, let not the Lord speak anymore, you know? there was a greater condemnation because the Lord was giving them something that they were not yet ready for. And I feel that, uh, you know, I don't know, perhaps Joseph or Martin forgot about that story. I don't know, but I feel like they had precedent for perhaps, perhaps knowing better than to ask a second time for something the Lord already said no to. I, I am sympathetic to your response, but at this point in my life where I've had a similar experience to Joseph and Martin Harris, I've kind of learned to hear no the first time and move accordingly. So that that's kind of where I'm sitting. Yeah, I don't know if this throws a wrench in the conversation, but I think about Jane Elizabeth Manning James and how many times she asked for her temple blessings. Uh-huh. And I think of her as the hero. I don't I don't think she was wrong to repeatedly ask for something that she knew inside that that's what she deserved and required. Yeah. And I was going to actually bring that up as well because Jane regularly went to the brethren to ask on uh to ask on her behalf you know, where where her place was in the plan of salvation or if she could, like, get her endowments taken or whatever. And I feel like that's a different scenario because with her relationship with God, she knew that she was worth more than what the church, what the church was showing her. So in that regard, I think it is a little bit different because she right. was confronting the brethren more so than she was confronting the Lord. And I think she already had that confrontation with the Lord, perhaps, you know. 
I feel like she already knew in her heart of hearts and in her relationship with the Lord that she was worth more than what the church was showing her. So I definitely view her as the hero. And, you know, that's kind of another question that I have. Like, what exactly was Martin's mistake in, uh, in this part other than not, you know, honoring the gift that he had received? Like, were there any other mistakes? Because I'm sympathetic to him as well. He's a man who is in the service of a, of a young man who's like 20 years his junior um, his wife is seeking proof, basically, that what they're doing is real. And, you know, a man who's like in his mid to late 40s is uh, serving this young man. He, he wants to have some kind of concrete thing to show to his wife on an already strained relationship that, look, what we're doing is valid. Yeah, I think one big difference between Joseph and Martin on the one hand and then Jane on the other has to do with maturity and preparedness. Because, like I said... This was a training wheels type thing. They weren't ready for this responsibility of having to to deal with the pages. But it was at the beginning of their career, the beginning of the journey. So yeah, and I think that was very different because Jane had a lot of experience walking with the Lord already and knew where she was coming from and had a platform from which to insist on her dignity. And I think that's that's probably the big difference there, at least that I see. I want to talk about the the solution that God has for them. It's this idea of backup plans and having a different path to the same basic goal. So what happens is, after the loss of the 116 pages, Joseph asks the Lord what to do. And you can see this in the preface to the 1830 Book of Mormon. There's an indication that the Lord told Joseph not to retranslate the 116 pages, but that the Lord provided a backup plan. Once the book of Lehi was lost, there was a provision for the book uh, for the book uh, plates of Nephi, and so Joseph was to translate from those, and you will have a different path to the same basic goal. And I want to talk a little bit about this idea of accommodation, because backup plans are okay. Like if some first plan is blocked. Another path to the same basic place is valid. And here we see the queer experience. Like, the plan of salvation as presented to us doesn't work. There's got to be a workaround. There's got to be a backup plan. There's got to be some other way of getting my people exalted without requiring us to have uh, heteronormative families. And this also connects with our conversations around disability a reasonable accommodation, another path of of access to the same goal is valid and reasonable. Now, the difference here is the reason why Joseph and Martin needed another path is because they made a mistake. That's not the case for disability. But my only point is that having another way around is is not only valid, but it's holy and essential and part of God's plan and just part of the way we should care for one another and expect God to care for us. The way that God seems to work is that he might not necessarily know exactly what's going to happen next, but he knows everything that could happen next and is Mm -hmm. more or less ready, or he is ready to accommodate anything that happens, which uh, really blends nicely into this other thing that is said in verse 3 and also later again in verse 16, that the work of God cannot be frustrated 
and that his work shall go forth. Like this has very Wentworth letter slash standard of truth vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, no unhallowed hand can stop the work, yada, yada. There is just this implication that no matter what happens throughout the course of Joseph Smith's ministry or any of our lives, that ultimately the purposes of God for all of us will be fulfilled, if not in this life, certainly in the next. And with when it comes to the rolling forth of his church, that there is always going to be a way forward that cannot be stopped by mere men, which I really like. And I really like applying that to the lives of, uh, you know, obviously queer folks and uh, people of color, but I really like that you brought people of disability into the conversation because, you know, when it comes to accessibility, they're often left out of the conversation. And it's just a beautiful idea that God is mindful of everything that either could go wrong, well, of everything that could go wrong or everything, every accommodation that might need to be made for people who can't uh, access certain blessings by conventional means. And uh, what we have here in DNC, or sorry, Doctrine and Covenants 3, is the note that when it comes to the purposes of the Lord, everybody's going to be accommodated. Everybody is going to have a way to access those blessings. Right, and I think we're not here limited by God's imagination. We're limited by our imagination. And there's things that we may not even see. And I love how the whole point of Section 3 is to speak hope into a difficult situation. And like I said, this is the first written down scripture of this dispensation and i am so moved by the fact that it begins with these words the works and the designs and the purposes of god cannot be frustrated neither can they come to naught that's the first opening words of scripture in our dispensation i think it's so profound that our first scripture is a response to trauma it is speaking hope into the heart of a crisis like that's what we should be about and so Section 3 is about God comforting those who were afflicted by their own sense of guilt or their own sense of frustration and hopelessness and not knowing what's going to happen next. And it also testifies to the fact that prophets can make mistakes. We just have to accept. That's the opening message of our scriptures is prophets make big mistakes. Like Moses in Numbers chapter 20, striking the rock and getting water, that's not what we're supposed to do. I'm not going to list all the prophets who made mistakes. That's just one, one freebie. One of but these days, gonna... though, we should enumerate those as well, so people yeah. can be like reminded that there is historical, pre- there's ancient and latter day precedent for prophets making mistakes and big mistakes that really mess up things for God's people. Oh, absolutely! All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And let's. I want to talk about this word astray because I think a lot of people have this very broad and nebulous understanding of what the word astray means. I'm talking about Wilfred Woodruff's uh, statement that the Lord will never let a prophet lead the church astray. And I interpret that very narrowly. I think astray in context means to be permanently and hopelessly led off the path. Like if if you're just kind of wandering on the path a little bit and there's a detour, there's a bump, or there's whatever, as long as you come back on the path and chart a course, that's not a stray. And I think this is a good testimony of what happens. So Joseph didn't lead the church. Well, the church didn't wasn't in, incorporated yet, but didn't lead God's people at this point hopelessly and permanently off the path. 
Joseph made a mistake, and God intervened. That's not astray. They got back on the path. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to say, and I, right. I, people say, people use this to justify the battering of queer people all the time. Well, the prophets don't make mistakes. Oh, the prophets absolutely. won't lead us astray. The prophets, blah, absolutely. blah, blah. Like, have you looked at our records of the prophets in the ancient and modern times? Prophets mm-hmm. made big mistakes mm-hmm. that involved and mm-hmm. ended up leading to the suffering of God's people. It's just a fact, and that's the tools. Yep. And if you look at the the brethren on their best, they'll admit that. They'll say, look, we're all imperfect. That's Absolutely. the only tools that, that God has to work with. We're going to make mistakes, and we make mistakes too. Like, I don't always understand God's will for my life when I receive inspiration for what I'm doing. I don't I don't get mm-hmm. it right all the time. So they're just like we are, or we're just like they are. It's not something magical that they have that we don't. Like, we're all in this, and we're going to make mistakes. And that's where the, the concept of accountability comes from. Section 3 is one of the biggest, biggest testaments to the fact of Prophets need to be held accountable. God held him accountable here. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He was punished. He had the Urim and Thummim taken away from him for a season. He lost his gift for a season and uh, was told basically what he needed to do to get right. Like he, the Lord had to tell him, you got to repent if you want these gifts back, if you want to like be able to proceed in your mission, which uh, kind of leads me to another thing I wanted to highlight in section three which was uh, verse 10. It's, it's very beautiful, and I just want to read it real quick. It says, But remember, God is merciful. Therefore, repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you, and thou art still chosen, and art again called to the work. Joseph Smith and Martin Harris. Joseph Smith is being talked about here, so I'll just focus on him for the time being, but he messed up pretty bad. Like, he made a big mistake. But God exercised mercy. He didn't remove Joseph from his prophetic appointment. He kept him there, and he was willing to forgive him and allowed him the the uh, the space to repent. And uh, just real quick, this reminded me of Alma's counsel to his youngest son Corianton back in Alma chapters thirty nine through forty two. At the end of Alma's words to him, which is basically a what three or four chapters long doctrine filled tongue lashing. Alma says something similar to Corianton in the last verse. He says, And now, O my son, ye are called to preach the word unto this people. Like this idea that you can commit some pretty serious sins and still be invited to participate in the work of the Lord in that same capacity on the condition of your repentance is both beautiful and encouraging. Like something like this is a balm to somebody like me. I know that I've made mistakes in my past. I will continue to make mistakes in the future, but it's just super comforting to know that even if I do make those big mistakes, uh, as big as losing 116 pages, as big as breaking a covenant with God, as big as doing whatever Corianton did, you know what I'm saying? Just Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to know that I can still repent and be forgiven and still be called to the same work. Like it, I'm not. It's not that I'm looking for an excuse to sin or anything. Right. But it's just very. It's just a very hopeful message and a very comforting message. I would hate to be defined and to lose what I feel is my mission in life because of a single mistake that I made. 
Like I, I like that would stress me all the way out. That would take away my will to try anything. But like just seeing that this has happened multiple times in the past, that is, this has happened in the latter days with Joseph Smith and seeing that it happened in ancient times with Corianton, that that should give all of us hope that no matter how bad we mess up or even if we mess up in our calling, that we can still be called. Right. That's such a profound point. And it gets to the comforting of the afflicted, which is one of our themes, not just this year, but for our whole podcast. I was going to mention that when you made the first call back to it a couple minutes ago, but I'm, I'm really glad you drew, you drew that out. Well, I just have three more things to say about Section 3, and then I'll be ready to move on. Very good. The, the first thing is, I just wanted to follow up on what you said about verse 10, and there is a hint as to what Joseph did wrong. It says, Repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you. And I think the commandment was, must have been to show it to these particular people and safeguard the pages and don't lose them and all these other things. That tells us what Joseph did wrong. I don't see any evidence in the text of section 3 where the Lord chastises Joseph for asking. There's no commandment against asking, and I think there's no commandment against asking repeatedly. We even have parables in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow, where you have someone, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that was the parable I alluded to when I first uh, brought that up. Yeah, I mean, there's no commandment not to ask, so that can't be what Joseph did wrong. That's my point from verse 10. I want to look at verse 16 because there's more comfort here. It says, nevertheless, my work shall go forth, for inasmuch as the knowledge of a Savior has come unto the world through the testimony of the Jews, even so shall the knowledge of a Savior come to my people. Here we have this future-looking, future-facing element of the gospel. It's, it's all about what's going to happen. It's not about what happened. We're defined more by our future than by our past as individuals and as a church. I love the word nevertheless at the beginning of verse 17. We should pay attention to the conjunctions because that tells us the flow of thought, the flow of the argument. And I think it's so beautiful that no matter what happened, nevertheless, the work shall go forth because the work isn't based on the merits of Joseph or the merits of anyone else. It's based on God. And that's what, you know, that's how this section ends in verse 20, to rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ, it says. So that's my second point. And my third point is about Lucy Harris and the concept of disability. So there's this very profound article by Rhett Stevens James called Lucy Harris Toward a Compassionate Reinterpretation. Rhett James argues here is there's evidence from Lucy Mack Smith, who is Joseph's mother. There's evidence from her that Lucy had a disability, progressive deafness, and according to Joseph's mother, this disability led her to be suspicious of other people. They were talking around her. She couldn't hear what they were saying. She didn't know if they were plotting against her. She didn't know if they were trying to defraud her. She didn't know, right? And because her access to the communal and social life of Palmyra was blocked, this may have led her to be skeptical. It may have led her to have been curious. It may have led her to want to double check. And I think we should have a charitable interpretation of Lucy Harris because I don't want people to say, oh, look, this this woman, she's a villain and she messed everything up and she was trying to undo the Lord's work. I don't think that's what she wanted. She simply wanted 
some guarantee that this that her husband's finances were going to be okay and that her life was going to be okay and she wasn't going to lose her house and that's reasonable i think right and so i just wanted to name this as, as how her disability appears to have affected her ability to uh, to navigate the situation and we should have a more compassionate approach to her what do you think of this we should certainly have a more compassionate take to uh, Lucy Harris in this particular circumstance because she had a lot going on. I'm wondering if there's a way of looking at Eve as a hero in a way that sheds light on maybe Lucy Harris being a hero for some of our gospel values, such as curiosity and asking. And I just really want any of our listeners who are interested in this particular topic, I want to lift up the Holy Human podcast. That's W-H- O-L-Y, humanpodcast.com, where our friends Serena and Katie are looking at the gospel from the lens of disability. Yes, shout out to them, doing great work. We'll hope to have a, a bonus up episode with them pretty soon. Um, yeah, I think by the end of the month we'll be able to talk to them, but yeah, I definitely want to echo that. They are doing some incredible work over there, and uh, you should definitely check it out. Just one thing that is kind of on my heart after what you just said um, one thing that like did stand out to me about this story, the th- the conflict that is in my mind again goes back to uh, believing people, believing people's experience when they have them. Because Martin Harris was doing similar things as uh, as Lucy was. Like there's that story that was in that article of apparently Martin Harris switching out the seer stone to see if Joseph could still, uh, you know, translate. So it wasn't like Martin wasn't doing his due diligence as well. On more than one occasion. He wanted to do what he could to verify or at least get some evidence that what Joseph Smith was doing was of God. And whether or not his uh, story about Charles Charles Anthon, Anthon, I don't know how to pronounce that, but whether or not that story actually was true, fact remains that Martin Harris continued in more earnest to uh, support uh, support the prophet's work. And I feel like there's a real danger that we come across when people tell us what they have a testimony of or tell us how they want to live into what they feel the Lord is calling them to do, and then we don't believe them. We have to be really careful about uh, how we approach those situations because if there is, like, I don't know, uh, I don't know Lucy Harris's situation because of the, you know, obviously those circumstances that she was in. So I don't want to be critical of her, but I do want to make sure I acknowledge the multiple, uh, areas or multiple narratives in this particular story where people are really struggling to believe the experiences of others and the trouble that gets them into. So I just wanted to make sure that is put out there too. Right. I, I didn't mean to to say in, in light of the evidence that Martin didn't do anything to double check, but I think he had a much more believing personality, a much uh, a much more ready personality than I mean that's uh, documented yeah that's documented people called him a fanatic back in the day right exactly like he really um latched on to a number of different things not just Joseph cool let's go to a uh, section five then uh, I felt relatively uninspired when it came to this section I only there's one thing that uh, stood out to me that I could not form a full thought around and I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts um You've already given the context for this verse, but uh, in verse four, I recalled reading something along the lines of the Lord uh, commanding Joseph Smith to 
not pretend to any other gift. The words he says are, you have a gift to translate the plates, and this is the first gift that I bestowed upon you. And I've commanded you or commanded that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this, for I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. Now, pretend in this context, usually when you see pretend to, uh, the intended meaning is lay claim to. So reading this another way, it says, you should not lay claim to any other gift is another way to read this. And I just thought that was a curious piece of counsel for the Lord to give Joseph Smith. I don't know if that is too particular for me to try to like get any additional meaning out of, or if there's something there that can be gleaned for the greater population. I don't, I just don't think I have the imagination to properly read into that very interesting piece of counsel. And I just wanted to see Derek, if you had anything uh, that perhaps comes to your mind when you hear that piece of counsel given to Joseph Smith. Right. It looks like a counsel towards humility. Okay. Joseph's primary and first gift was that of a translator. And that is what the Lord wanted to focus on at this time. And I looked up pretend in the Webster 1828 dictionary, which I love the idea that we have a source of how American English was documented in 1828, which is exactly what we need to understand well, what's this mean in the Book of Mormon, or what does this mean in the DNC? And if you look at the fifth definition of pretend, it means to claim. There's other other definitions that 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 imply a deception or a false appearance, but just to claim is is an attested usage of this word, which really mean, means to just stretch out beforehand, to reach or stretch towards something, based on its root words in Latin. But I like this idea that you brought out that at this point he shouldn't reach out for any other gift until this purpose is fulfilled. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It does. It really does. Because like this is how the Lord likes to work with his children, including his prophets. Mm-hmm. Like he'll he'll like he'll give them line upon line as well. Exactly. Ancient records and our, you know, latter day records are replete with evidence that Even the prophets are getting line upon line. They don't know stuff that we can't know as well. I mean, that seems to be a theme, not just for Joseph Smith, but Martin Harris as well later in this verse, because it appears that even at this point in DNC, in Doctrine and Covenants section five, that, uh, uh, what is it? What is it? What is it? That Martin Harris is still kind of struggling with this sense of entitlement or struggling with this humility, even after losing the 116 pages. And uh, not only Joseph Smith needs to learn this lesson, but Martin Harris as well, in that, uh, you know, we really need to learn to be content with what the with the appointment that the Lord has given us. This is backed up in Alma chapter 29, uh, when, you know, Alma laments that he is not an angel. He's like, oh, that I were an angel, then I could do all this and all this. But then he also acknowledges that I do sin in my wish and I ought to be content in that which the Lord has commanded me to do. And then ultimately concludes in verse 9 that I know that which the Lord hath commanded me and I glory in it. Which is, I think, a uh, what the Lord is trying to instill into Joseph Smith at this point. This is your job. This is your gift. Glory in that. And you can perhaps have more once you finish with what I've given you at this point. If you need to do any more, I will give you more gifts. But for the time being, this is your job. So this is what you get. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense. All right, cool. Sometimes I just be talking, so, you know, just want to make sure my senses are coherent. There's just a couple of things more I want to say about Section 5 before we move on. One is, this is another beautiful example of the people prompting the prophets. Section 5 came into being because Martin wanted a witness of the truth of, of Joseph's story and the truth of the, the Book of Mormon and, and the, the plates. And then there's a promise in Section 5 that Martin will have an opportunity to gain a testimony of the plates. Like it says in verse 15, and the testimony of three witnesses I will send forth of my word. So Martin's going to be one of the three witnesses. And I want to talk about this concept of testimony. It's kind of like testimony allows you to see around a corner. Like if there's a corner in a hallway and someone's in that intersection and I'm not, and I ask them what they see down the other hallway, I can't see what they see. But I can, I can see and, and hear what that person testifies of that I don't have direct access to. And this is a brilliant, brilliant tool for analyzing a lot of things in our society. For example, I want to believe women. I want to believe people of color when they speak about their experiences because I haven't had those experiences. And I'm going to trust them when they say this is what's going on. Same thing with people in the disability community, if they attest to the fact that they require a particular accommodation, I'm going to believe them because they have access to something I don't. Same thing with trans people. I'm going to, okay, this is going to be weird, but if we can believe people when they saw, they say that they saw angels and plates that we have never seen, if we can believe that, how outrageous it is, we can believe something as normal as people telling us what their gender is without having to look at their medical history. Without, you know, we don't get to have access to the plates and we don't get to have access to trans people's whatever. We believe them. You're totally right, though. And I don't think that's weird at all, Derek. I think I've said that before as well, perhaps not thinking about all the implications of it. But I was just like, look, if Mormons can believe that a 14-year-old boy saw God and Jesus Christ in a sacred grove and translated this sacred record... We can certainly believe trans folks when they tell us mm -hmm. what their gender identity is. Like, it just, this shouldn't be that hard for us, especially a church founded on Jesus Christ, who, you know, was all about radical right. compassion over stringent legalism. Like, that shouldn't be a hard thing for the followers of Jesus Christ to do, especially in the restored gospel, which is founded on so much that is apparently suspect in today's world. But, uh, yeah, I, I totally appreciate you saying that it should it shouldn't be that hard for us as members of this church to believe trans folks to believe disabled folks to believe exactly especially when there's millions of them saying yes it's not just one person what we need to hear three it's not just yeah. three you witnesses, have multiple or eight. witnesses it's like yes it's millions of trans people yeah exactly and um i just want to end what i my thoughts on section five by looking at verse 30 and 4 and 35 because this section ends with some promises like I said, these sections are future-facing. It's all about what God's going to do. You know, I will provide means whereby thou mayest accomplish the thing which I have commanded thee. And if thou art faithful in keeping my commandments, thou shalt be lifted up at the last day. So it's it's really future-facing. It's like, it's where we're going. It's kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll have my rent in next week, right? This is, this is what the Lord's kind of doing to us, is, is telling us where we're going 
And that's defining our identity much more than where we've been. So if there's nothing else in Section 5, do you want to go over Section 4 really briefly? Yeah, let's. what did you see in Section 4? So just as a disclaimer, I, have memor- I memorized this, these verses like over a decade ago. Like it was, re- it was basically a, a requirement if you served a mission. I'm kind of desensitized to these verses. So like I probably did not pull as much out as I could have. There is actually a lot in these verses, by the way. Like in my last reading of these verses, I realized how much doctrine is actually in here, how chock full of goodness these verses actually have and how like you could really dissect each one of these verses and, you know, have we we could probably have had a whole conversation just on these verses alone. But uh, for the sake of time and the, for sa- and the and for the sake of just honoring what my own promptings were as I read through these uh, verses last time, the primary thing that stood out to me was verse 4. For verse 3, I think. It was verse 3. The shortest verse in the whole thing. Um, the verse that says, Therefore, if ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. So um, I think the reason this stood out to me was simply because I stay, despite knowing that the Lord uses the weak and the, you know, the lesser things of this world to accomplish his great purposes, I always feel like I have to have some greater qualifications to say anything that I say. Like, I'll I'll just be real with y'all. Growing up black in America and in this church— I felt like my intelligence was under constant scrutiny. So I always had to make an effort to, you know, speak properly, to sound articulate and eloquent at all times, to make sure I knew my stuff so well that people could not deny my intelligence. Um, At this point in my life, I hate getting the compliment that I'm articulate because basically it's just outing people's sensibilities that or their ideas Mm -hmm. that they are not accustomed to intelligent sounding black folks but like there's some just deep trauma in my head that comes from just knowing that white folks in particular racist white folks in particular do not expect a lot out of me so i feel like to a degree that if i want to be a worthy participant in this work I need to have as much education as I can. I need to have a bigger vocabulary. I need to have a larger theological imagination. I have to have degrees on degrees because I feel like that is what is going to qualify me in other people's eyes to say Mm -hmm. what it is that I want to say. Now, fortunately or unfortunately for me, Barack Obama kind of undid all of that. I think I discussed this in our... uh, I think I discussed this in our Why I Believe that Why We Believe episode, but uh, just to be super quick, when I saw a man as intelligent and as educated, as charming, as well spoken, well read, and you know, fit and handsome as Barack Obama, when I saw that man get into the highest office in the land, and then still face so much disrespect, I realized that I'm always going to be lesser in some people's eyes no matter how much intelligence I acquire. Mm-hmm. I could I could be the smartest person in the room. I could be the most eloquent guy around. I, I could be 
I could be better than people in every conceivable way, but my skin color is still going to discount me in their eyes. Yeah. So, uh, so coming across a verse like verse three is super comforting to me because I discovered that having no more than the desire to serve God qualifies me to do the work that I want to do. Now, that doesn't mean I get to be lazy in my learning mm-hmm. or that I get to be less than compassionate to anybody. Like, that desire actually propels me to learn more. That desire compels me and gives me the desire to be more compassionate and to be kinder and to be all these other things. In fact, those desires or those traits are outlined in uh, in these verses. So much so that some are even mentioned twice. Faith and charity are mentioned in both verse 5 and in verse 6. And I think that is, you know, another thing worth bringing out. But uh, it just is very comforting and humbling to me that God can work with people if they have no more than a desire to be Mm -hmm. called to the work. And I think our missionary program is evidence of that. You know, I see the people they be, that we be (laughs) sending on Uh missions and, you know, no shade, no disrespect to the people that are out there serving missions, but you know, the Lord be working miracles with, you know, Mm -hmm. some dullards like me, you know what I'm saying? And I am, I can definitely bear testimony to this as a guy who is just not naturally the most eloquent person out there or the most well-spoken person out there. Let me tell y'all, I was kind of a force on my mission and I have not been able to recover that (laughs) since I've been home. (laughs) So like, you know, I like, I'm not naturally a great teacher, but like on my mission, I was a great teacher. Now, granted, I knew all the lessons front to back you know, I could recite them from memory if I wanted to. I could probably still do that now. But I think that because my desire was so high to just do this work and to be the best instrument mm-hmm. in the Lord's hands, the Lord qualified me. And he was able to draw from the well that was my feeble mind. So uh, I just want to bear testimony of this particular bit of counsel that the Lord gave to Joseph Smith Sr. That if you have a desire to serve God, that is all the Lord needs to work with you. And uh, I feel especially for the people who want to do this work of affirming people of color, affirming LGBTQ folks, affirming women, affirming the disabled. If you feel like you're not qualified to engage in that work, let me tell you that if you have no more than a desire to enter into this fight that we are engaged in, enter into this struggle, enter into this ministry of affirming the marginalized, that is all the Lord needs from you. You can let that desire work in you and you can let the Lord use you to do great things. Again, as Derek says, you don't got to be Derek. You ain't got to be me. You don't got to have our particular gifts and talents. You just need a desire. And then the Lord can use whatever strengths you got to have an effect on your immediate circle. That is all the Lord needs is your desire. And then he can work with you from there and rant. Mm, wow. Yes. Now, I don't think you have a feeble mind. So so don't worry about that. I'll also that is very kind of you, Derek. So for the record, everyone, all my listeners, I want you to know that I have never told James that he's articulate. OK, so he has never done that. He yeah. has never done that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know enough not to do that. OK, Derek stays known enough not to do a lot of things, which I always applaud him for. So I, I, I want to name some things that I noticed in section four, at least real quick. Going back to the historical context, Joseph Smith Sr. came all the way from New York to Harmony, Pennsylvania to ask his son where he fits in. Like, how many of us who are queer 
have gone miles, figuratively or literally, to ask where we fit in. And look at the answer that Joseph got. He didn't get rebuffed. He didn't get rejected. He didn't say, oh, you're not sustaining whatever. That's what he got. In fact, this is a testimony that Joseph Sr. supported his son and wanted to be involved in the mission and was available for the mission and wanted to take some initiative to say, where do I fit in the Lord's work? And this shows, on the other hand, that Joseph and all of Joseph's family supported Joseph in his weirdness, right? There's something, there's something good. Like the whole Smith family really rallied around him and believed their, their son or their brother. I want to say something about verse 3. And it says, if ye have desires. Because let's look at what's happening. Joseph Sr. went to his son and said, I want to help you. I want to do this with you. I want to X, Y, Z. And that, if you have desires to go to the prophet and tell them something, that means you're called by God to do that work. So when queer people have desires to assist the prophets in receiving revelation, if we have desires to serve God that way, we are called to do it. Do that work. Yes. So we should have the boldness. Like we are called to have the boldness. If we have desires to speak to the prophets about our dignity, that we're called to. And mm-hmm. so it's not just, a lot of people read verse 3 as just about missionary work. If you want to be a missionary, you're called to the work. But I think it's if you want to go to the prophet and say something, if you want to go to the prophet and be helpful, you're called to that too. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about how to be helpful. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. I really think these can be seen as principles and values for activism. Like Oh, absolutely. When we when when our values shape our activism and where the means are the end, like a lot of people will say, well, you can do whatever you want as long as you get to your goal. But when you get to your goal, everything that you did will be baked into that result. Mm-hmm. If we are uh, loving, and by loving, I don't mean this like, you know, flowery, affectionate thing. I mean... Without justice. Yeah, powerful, true love that actually engages the well-being of everyone. That's love, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, know, on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I'm really glad you made that point before, you know, the racist whites come in with all this talk about love and calls to unity without calls for justice. Exactly, and I... That's my biggest problem. When people use the word love, like, oh, we love our gay friends. Like, what do you mean by that? You made me angry just by saying that sentence, dude. Yeah. I mean, what they mean is, oh, I have this fuzzy feeling in my heart when I think about you. That's not what I need. I don't, I'd don't. i rather have you work for my justice and just not like me than have this fuzzy mm-hmm. feeling in your heart about me mm-hmm. and leave me in a state of injustice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but back to these. These are principles of activism. There should be hope. There should be resilience. There should be justice. All of these things baked into our methods and that's the the key, that's the reign we will build the mm-hmm. reign of god and then verse seven again it says ask of god like somehow we queer people get in trouble for asking of god and insisting that our leaders ask of god but it says ask and ye shall receive knock and it shall be opened unto you i think the knocking and the opening is the opening of the closet door when we knock on the inside of that closet door, God opens it. Something else that is uh, sticking out to me right now is uh, this line in the end of verse 5. I pondered it on occasion, 
this phrase, and I single to the glory of God. What I want to say that is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. We got a lot of people in America trying to serve two masters right now, God and white supremacy. White supremacy. <laughs> yeah, or God man. and nationalism. Like, you can't. You're yeah. gonna, you have to betray one or the other, and if you serve nationalism, you're betraying God. Now, before we move on to the housekeeping items, wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? So you can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we have this merchandise handles? shop. Oh, it's BTB LDS for Instagram and um, Twitter. Mm -hmm. And we have this merchandise shop that I'm not sure how to get to, but you can get to it from beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yeah, that is correct. And there's one other, th uh, other thing I wanted to lift up, and that's our friends at Faithful Feminists, Channing and Elise. Their podcast, if you want to discuss and listen to more about Lucy Harris, my understanding is that they will be talking about her this week. Awesome, awesome. And I believe we will also be enjoying an episode with the Faithful Feminist next week, so uh, be on the lookout for that as well. Yes, I am really looking forward to having the conversation on Revelation with the Faithful Feminist. They, they stay, I, I listen to a couple of their episodes on uh, the subject where they just like lightly touch upon it, and I'm just like, I want to have this conversation with them. So I am excited, and I'm excited for you guys because they're going to be bringing some truth. Capital T. R-U-F. Yeah, man. Okay, uh, as far as events go, I don't have anything other than just another reminder to save the date. February 20th is going to be the Black LDS Legacy Conference. It will be a virtual event. Okay, and uh, also just want to give a special thanks to our new collaborators who have joined us on uh, on Facebook via our Glow page. If any of you have uh, appreciated what Derek and I have to bring you, or uh, you want to support what we're doing here at the podcast, you are more than welcome to throw some coins our way through Glow by going to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. I also want to give a special thanks to uh, certain of our collab collaborators, Tamara Kemsley for doing our audio editing, uh, David Doyle for doing our transcripts, and Eden Wynn for being our social media wizard. Thank all three of you for handling business for us and just making what we do more accessible and all around sexier. Thank you guys very much. Yeah, and, and you should all be thankful that I don't handle our social media because otherwise it will just be filled with awful jokes and that's <laughs> it. Awesome. Then thank you guys for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week. Next week. I'll see you later. Bye. <laughs>